Okay, over here. All right. Ready? All right. <clears throat> My name is Oscar Adamson, and this is my story. If I find myself at the end of the world All alone and without you Floating down the river to the sea Golden sunsets open Well, I'd have my speech ready. What I'd say Oh darling You know my famous Last words will be oh, If I find myself In the road to heaven St. Peter by my All my sins and triumphs are Well, I know what I would tell you I know just what I'd say My darling You know my famous last words would be I love you Don't be afraid to speak your love Baby, tell it where you are You know your life is like a shooting star A shooting star If I find myself
I don't really know where to begin except to say I'm sorry for what I've done. I didn't realize how widespread it was for the longest time. And then I began reading the stories and I uh, I decided to come clean. I first met Michael when I was 12 years old. It was the uh, winter of 1981. I was in Mrs. Borntrager's 7th grade English class at Galena Middle School. That's in uh, Galena, Illinois. It's about three hours northwest of Chicago. Um, anyway, I got, I got called to the office one Friday, and I, I didn't really know why. But um, there was Michael sitting in the vice principal's chair. He was well-dressed with a briefcase perfectly centered on his lap. He smiled as I walked in, and uh, Vice Principal Ramsey says, Oscar, this man wants to talk to you about a unique opportunity. <laughs> oh, if only I could have told them what to do with that unique opportunity. But Michael was real nice. He uh, asked me questions about my family, where I lived, but I, I think he knew the answers already. It's like he uh, nodded a hair too soon, you know? I told him about my mom and dad, my little brother Daniel, <laughs> I told him that I wanted to run the coin-op laundry on Main someday, and he, he laughed. He kind of got a kick out of that. And then he looked at Vice Principal Ramsey and said, yeah. I think he'll work out fine. And I'm like, what's well, going to work out? And I guess that was his cue because he turns to me and asks, who's your favorite band? <laughs> I got to say, I was knocked out a bit. I mean, no adult ever asked me that question, like sincerely, right? Who cares about a little kid's music? So I says to him, I says, Frankie and the Knockouts. <laughs> oh, man. He gets this real weird look on his face, but then he breaks into a smile again. They suck, he tells me. And they're not your favorite band anymore. Nothing about me was the same after that. Michael was a record man, A&R at Columbia, and I was just one of thousands of kids he and others groomed for an industry-wide program called the Junior Executive Project, or JEEP for short. <laughs> the whole thing was diabolical genius if you think about it. See... There was this secret study going around the music biz about how the Midwest was the next breeding ground for musicians, publicists, and especially rock critics. And the objective of Jeep was to get our hooks in them early in the most seemingly organic way possible. 
as older kids influencing younger kids. Have you ever read stories about that kid on the school bus who turned some other kid onto a particular style of music so that kid could grow up to write for the Village Voice or Pitchfork? Yeah, that was us. First, my family had to move out of Galena. Too many kids there knew me. So I was transferred to Wheaton, about two and a half hours southeast, so closer to Chicago. After six weeks of basic training convincing rural white kids to listen to some dude from Minneapolis named Prince, I was picked up for the Special Forces Unit. And we had what we thought was the shit detail. Columbia's back catalog. Everyone else had it easy. I mean, wheeling around the suburbs with duped copies of Billy Joel's Nylon Curtain. But we had to somehow convince our peers to embrace our parents' music or some obscure artist who never broke and probably never would. But Michael told us that we were special and that if we were successful, we'd be the ones remembered. They may not remember your names, they said, but they'll write essays about you someday about how you were the turning point in their lives. No one talks about the dude who gave them copies of Paradise Theater. There were four of us in our division. Pete was the oldest, 14, so he handled jazz. Miles Davis's In a Silent Way, Art Farmer's Baroque Sketches, Don Ellis's Autumn, stuff like that. Remember the 1959 jazz campaign a few years back? All Pete. And Jordan was a little more sensitive. He was 13, and uh, he carried a backpack full of Dylans. Gary was a specialist like me. He went around to all the junior highs trying to get everyone on board with Hoyt Axton's My Griffin Is Gone. Rough gig, but uh, damned if he didn't get eventually every high school football team in Texas singing On the Natural on long road trips. My job? Art rock. For starters, my liaison hooked me up with Terry Riley's A Rainbow and Curved Air. <laughs> I was told that if anyone asked why a 12-year-old was into Terry Riley, my dad was a fan, and he used the record to help me fall asleep. I tried to change it up and say my mom liked him, but Michael said nobody believed that in a million years. It'd be like finding a woman who preferred the Peter Gabriel Genesis or who dreamed of hooking up with everyone in Gentle Giant. Although I did distribute a lot of art rock albums in the back of school buses, my focus was a record Terry did with John Cale called Church of Anthrax. Released February 10, 1971, it was languishing in Columbia's vaults, 
and the company thought Vangelis' surge in popularity with the Chariots of Fire and Blade Runner soundtracks would revive interest in something they called a little heavier. But Columbia was also thinking long-term, down the road, about the reissue market, which they thought would be lucrative someday. And wouldn't it be something if they already had an audience waiting when they finally released Church in a triple CD deluxe edition with bonus tracks, demos, 180-gram vinyl, and every hiccup remastered with sickening gaseous clarity? I would create the groundswell of demand. It would build slowly, prompted by my generation's cries and major music publications for its reinstatement, and no one would be the wiser that I was responsible for it all. Over a four-year period, I materialized suddenly on hundreds of afternoon buses departing middle and high schools throughout the Midwest. My air of cool drew the bookish to me as I sat in the back, staring out a window, pretending to be aloof. There was always music back there, always the latest hits. Pat Benatar, Def Leppard, Loverboy. I was required to initiate the conversation. What do you think of Def Leppard, I'd ask. And the kid would usually say something like, Oh, they're cool, I guess. Or, Oh, maybe. And that's when I knew I had them. The indecision. The hesitation to tell me no. And I'd hand him my Walkman and say, Yeah, they're all right. But if you really want the hard stuff, try this. And I'd whip a little hall of mirrors in the Palace of Versailles on him. And they'd get this look on their face, you know, donut mouth, eyes ablaze. And you knew that someday they'd publish a 12-page appreciation of this misunderstood work in Salon. They'd talk about that kid, Scott, who made them believers. I was Scott. I was Scott a lot. I was also Dave, Patrick, Jason, Mark, Aaron... Mike and Paul and you never saw me again after that I was on to other buses other states other ears and that's okay I was never supposed to be remembered as anything more than a cipher and they paid me pretty good I'm kind of proud of what we accomplished as Jeep. We resuscitated back catalogs and introduced multiple generations to bands they may not have found on their own. But was all that subterfuge necessary? Moving from town to town just to sit on buses and pass tapes to other kids? To become anecdotes and endlessly recycled Information and overweening pentameters of middle-aged pseudo-academics? To read yet another think piece about the past, as if we're so distraught by the present that we're desperate for the ever-vanishing past, that music is no longer about passion and experience, but about history and production information as signs of intellectual superiority. 
Is this the world the Jeep hath wrought? Is everyone now the older kid on the bus? In the end, I failed with Church of Anthrax. But actually, I succeeded. I spared that record, the indignity of a 48th anniversary podcast. I can't even imagine what that sounds like. Salutations and aloha, my friends. It's 1985. Good morning. I'm your host, Corey Justin Fry, Scorpio. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Oli's Something Else Eatery. It's the only Eddie Cochran themed hummus buffet in the Mid Willamette Valley. Mention the podcast for 40% off parking. And don't worry, ladies, the sweater sniffer has been fired. Uh, you can find Oli's at, um, you know those apartments where Dale and Dana lived back in the day, right before the big fire, and Dale lost all his Slayer records, and they had to move to that loft over the old Knights of Pythias building? Yeah, yeah, where we got all that fucking weed, and I ate all the Hot Pockets, and then later thought I was shitting my ancestors? Yeah, it's right there with the hairdresser, no, not not, not Stacy, the, the blonde dude with the scabs and the ferret. Yeah, where he used to be, and there was that bar across the street with the pirate on the roof. I can't remember the name, but I've got friends who do karaoke there all the time, and they never invite me. So, yeah, Oli's. Our garam masala's fine tasting, man. It's something else. I gotta give Oli his props, man. I mean, he's filling a definite Epicurean void in this city. Uh, I don't think he'll mind if I say this. Um, his, his, name, his actual name is Paul Wapner. And he's a real proactive guy. He's been going through my back catalog, so to speak, and uh, texting me feedback on what he likes about the show and uh, where he thinks there's room for improvement. He's even made a couple of suggestions, too, and uh, one I'm taking him up on this week as kind of a favor to him, but it's really a pleasure for me because I'm a, I'm a big music guy, too. See, Paul's really enthusiastic about album anniversaries. I mean, you look at his Facebook page, and it's nothing but classic rock band, Rolling Stone, Blabbermouth, and Loudwire retrospectives on this or that record and how it was produced and all, right? And I, I really like that stuff, too. But it's usually, it's the same stuff over and over again, right? Oh, the 50th anniversary of Love's Forever Changes with the usual pilfered anecdotes from various Rhino reissues and interviews conducted 20 years ago for the 30th anniversary retrospective in Mojo. And I, I think in a lot of cases, there's very little left to learn about stuff like Forever Changes or Odyssey and Oracle, Tusk or, you know, F SF Sorrow. And uh, Paul's totally on the same page. He thought it'd be fun to do something like that, and he even put his choice in an envelope for me to open on the podcast and just, just riff on it a while, because usually all my episodes are scripted, and uh, he said I need to be more spontaneous. So, Paul, here's your envelope. This one's for you, man. Okay, today's album anniversary is... Oh, this is very exciting. I wonder what... Ah. Come on. Oh, yeah. Very exciting. Today's album anniversary is... Church of Anthrax by John K. Oh. 
fuck me. Fuck me. John Cale and Terry Riley. Oh my god. Wow. Church of at Wow. Jesus Christ. Is this even in print anymore? Fuck. I mean, seriously. I think the last person who owned a copy of this auto-asphyxiated with their own leather belt on their apartment toilet in 1975. Church of Anthrax, you're out of your goddamn mind. This is a seriously obscure record. This is the record you inherit from your college professor uncle's estate along with the, the postgraduate thesis he wrote and couldn't get published in Crawdaddy. You know, and, and maybe his, his unpublished novel about a college professor who fucks doped-up theater majors with a Philip Glass dildo while hypnotizing them with John Cage-inspired rockabilly freebop. It's not that it's a bad record. It's a decent record. Kind of fun, I suppose. I just, I just don't understand why anyone would commemorate the anniversary of its release. It is, it's just not out there. I can't run out to a store and buy it. I, I can't build a Spotify playlist with it. I can't stream it. God, can I even order a, a hard copy on Amazon without parting with a lot of cash? I mean, God, let me see. I mean, mm. let me call it. Oh. Well, okay, yeah, there's a CD, and it's, it's, it's pretty reasonable, but... God, I can't even order it with Amazon Prime. It's not going to get here until Friday or some shit. God, what is, what is all music? What is the all, all music guy day? Even have a... Let's see. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Not quite modern classical music, but not at all rock and roll either. Well, I mean, that's Stuart Mason. He knows this stuff. Well, let's let's try Wikipedia. The link. Oh, yeah. Bobby's Colin B and Greg play drums on the record. Yeah. How did you look at that? Well, well, let's see, there's a look here. Let's see what the Dean of Rock Criticism has to say about it. Oh, that's not something you'd put on the fridge. Well, I don't really know what to say about Church of Anthrax. It was released. And, um, well, according to this screenshot... Paul sent me. Thanks, Paul. It was released on February 10th, 1971, which was... Let's see. H, carry the 1, the 4. 48 years ago yesterday. So, congratulations, I guess, to uh, John Cale and Terry Riley. Church of Anthrax, get the fuck out of here. Hey, you know who I think is underrated? It's Hoyt Axton. Let's talk about him for a while. First, here's On the Natural. Good night. <laughs>